You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. For our regular fans, you're wondering what happened to our normal Hazard Ground background. Well, the long story short here, uh, the uh, pipes burst in the house over the Christmas holiday and destroyed my home studio. So uh, we are flying by the seat of our pants here. We're, we're adapting and moving on. And so please bear with the lovely background of my front lawn and the street behind me uh, as we go forward. But that's not the important part. The important part is our guest this week has spent 24 years in the Navy. Most of that inside the Navy SEALs and Special Operations with an incredible story that we'll get to in just a moment. First, our normal reminders, as always, please continue to support our promotion with Amazon Go to hazardground.com. That's our website. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and uh, you will be directed to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, buy whatever you like, and we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. Then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way to support veterans' charities just by doing Amazon shopping, but you got to go to hazardground.com first. Please continue to uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give a thumbs up and a like to all the content there as well. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at hazardground, at hazardgroundpodcast, and continue to leave five-star Apple reviews. Please tell us why you love the show. It doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Lengthy review just leaves a quick couple of words about why you love the show, and we certainly appreciate that five-star review. All right, on to this week's guest. As I mentioned, 24 years in the United States Navy where he started out as an enlisted man, then went on to the Naval Academy in Annapolis and went directly into the Navy SEALs, spent the next 18 years of his career inside of Naval Special Operations, seven combat deployments, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, additional work in Panama, Jordan, Bahrain, and UAE. Uh, After the Navy... He became uh, the Deputy Executive Director of the Veteran Nonprofit Veterans Path. Uh, He also has a podcast called Men Talking Mindfulness, and now he currently owns his own company called McCaskill Consulting, which works with uh, civilian organizations, regular American companies on leadership, and a whole lot more. He is John McCaskill joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. John, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's an honor. And I've listened to some of your shows and I'm not sure I deserve to be alongside those who have been on here before, man. So I don't don't know. I mean, listen, uh, there there is a there's a lengthy precedent for people of your ilk uh, to be on this show. And I'm sure you've known some of our some of our other previous guests. But full disclosure, again, I told you this before we started recording. I was not aware of your career. A guest or a listener, rather, had suggested, say, hey, Mark, I think you should really check out John McCaskill. He'd be a wonderful addition for your show. And certainly a lot of the stuff that you've talked about, whether throughout your career and in your podcast, uh, certainly has come up. And I'm excited to hear uh, about your story. And and we always start at the beginning, John. So how and why did you enlist in the Navy? Oh, man. All right. So, yeah, the beginning, it actually, it goes way back uh, to <laughs> to my beginning. Um, so I was I was born in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, my parents at the time, you know, that they were just doing what parents do, raising kids. I've got three older sisters and a younger brother. And fast forward to when I was seven years old, my parents decided, you know what, South Africa is kind of um, – somewhat falling apart at the time. Uh, they, they were still practicing apartheid and they were also practicing the draft for young men. And my parents 
didn't want me to get drafted into the military. So the the joke um, for my parents is that you know that they moved to the United States to keep me from getting drafted, at least for young men. That was that's that was the case. It was young men were getting drafted. Um, they moved to the states to keep me from getting drafted when I turned eighteen. So when I turned nineteen, um, I volunteer. I voluntarily uh, enlisted in the United States Navy. Ah. But at least I had a choice in the matter. So. Um, in and, and then rewinding a little bit to probably uh, I don't know fourteen fifteen years old I was uh, running track and cross country and was part of a kind of a small fairly elite group as, as I guess as elite as a high school team can be right uh, and we were like brothers we were doing everything together we were training together partying together having fun um, going to school together and we really bonded we were like this unit. And I felt that I wanted to be part of a unit when I graduated high school. And specifically, I wanted to be part of a unit doing something that was bigger than myself. And so this, the the Navy, the military kind of answered that question. Okay, who, who does that? Well, they, the, the military does that. They, they do something bigger than themselves. And then specifically within the military, who are the elite? So the, the special operations uh, are, the, are those who are doing missions that are elite that people don't hear about, or at least back then they didn't hear about. Now, now they're broadcast on the news all the time. But anyhow, um, so special operations jumped out at me. And even though I grew up in Louisiana, every summer we would spend time down in the, down in the Gulf Coast and you know, spend weeks there. And I fell in love with just being in and around the water. Uh, so the Navy was kind of what bubbled to the surface. So I started doing some research on Navy and special operations within the Navy. And obviously, the the SEALs kind of bubbled to the surface. So I, I enlisted the Navy as a as a parachute rigger with the intent of going into BUDS. Um, for those who may be first time listeners to the show or may not be aware of what BUDS is, it's basic underwater demolition SEAL training. It's out in Coronado, California. Um, the intent was to go into BUDS. I uh, ended up getting picked up for the Naval Academy um, and went through the four years there, graduated in 2001, and then Now, went when you say picked up for the Naval Academy, I mean, that was – was that ever on the radar to go to the Naval Academy or was, was yeah. it just something that came came along the way? Yeah, good point. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't just get picked up. You're right. right. Uh, so <laughs> I, uh, You kind of have applied. to apply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had applied to go to the Naval Academy um, out of high school and got turned down, and I had a friend – who was uh, a year or two ahead of me, also out of the same high school, had done something very similar, had enlisted in the Navy um, and then applied uh, out of the enlisted ranks to go to the Naval Academy. He got he got an appointment uh, and and ended up going. He was uh, ended up one class ahead of me at the Naval Academy. He also went Navy SEALs. Um, so we kind of had a similar career path out of the small town of Ruston, Louisiana, Ruston High School, went enlisted, went to the Naval Academy, ended up going SEALs, and uh, he's getting out uh, here soon. So he's he's uh, getting out as a, a senior commander, 05. Anyhow, um, yeah, so I, I put in my my package as a as a high schooler, got turned down. I saw that my buddy had done something similar. I ended up enlisting and the intent was either to go SEALs as an enlisted man or get picked up after applying 
<laughs> to to go to the Naval Academy. So, and, I, I mean, was there anything specific? Did you want to be an officer? I mean, was that, or was it just you wanted to go to the Naval Academy? I'm just kind of curious because people uh, who go to the service academies, you know, they know the whole deal and they, they yeah. want the whole bag of donuts. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've got some funny donut stories, funny enough, uh, later. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so... I, I wanted to be uh, an officer. I wanted to be a leader. I'd been right. the okay. uh, the captain of my cross country team since I was a sophomore, and I I just wanted to be a leader of of men on the battlefield. Um, and the you know the seals um, offered that opportunity to the officers. I did not know at the time the opportunities to lead as an enlisted man. Now there are an amazing, sure. as you well know. There are amazing opportunities to lead as an enlisted man. And if I had it to do all over again, um, I, I probably would have stayed enlisted and gone SEALs. Um, I, I very much enjoyed my time as an officer. I love the fact that I went to the Naval Academy. I enjoyed my time there, and I still get uh, very excited around the Army-Navy football game. Um, but Not this year. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that man fumbling on the goal line. That's you know, that you can't win kid. a game that way. Can't that win a game kid. that way. Anyhow, um, so um I, I did want to lead and I thought, again, just being a nineteen year old naive kid, I thought the only way to lead in the SEAL teams was as an officer. So I, I uh enlisted, got picked up uh to the Naval Academy and graduated in class of two thousand one and then went out to BUDS after that, uh SEAL training. Okay, uh, so you're and, in BUDS when nine eleven happens. Yeah. So, yeah. So we were the last class to graduate from the Naval Academy uh, in peacetime. And, you know, fast forward three and a half months yeah. uh, to September. And uh, yeah, we all know what happened there. I was in BUDS. Um, I was actually in what's called PTRR, uh, which is, I think, I forget what it actually stands for. I think it's pre-training rest and relaxation or rest and recuperation or something like that. Uh, they they call it fourth phase, which is actually the first of the phases, but it happens before, um, before first phase, um, gotcha. at buds. Um, but yeah, I was, I was in PTRR when, when nine 11 happened. I remember, you know, at the time we had those kind of shitty cell phones that, that, uh, didn't work real well period. But then yeah. of course, nine 11 put some strain on the network and everyone trying to call home and trying to call what, find yeah. out what's going on. It was total, total chaos. And I remember an instructor who, funny enough, I ran into about two months ago. I hadn't seen him since then, and I ran into oh, wow. him. And I was like, "Hey, man, are, are you in? Are, are you instructor Cates?" And he's like, "Yeah, I mean, I'm not instructor Cates anymore, but back then I was." I was like, "Dude, I remember on 9/11, we were doing a workout, and he came out and stood on the podium. He's like, "All right, everybody, stop what you're doing. Hey, uh, you know, we we've been attacked. Um, the 9/11." obviously we weren't calling it that then, but the, he was like, the twin towers have been attacked. The Pentagon has been attacked. And a, a lot of people are comparing this to Pearl Harbor. And he said, well, let me tell you, Pearl Harbor was devastating, but I, I don't think Pearl Harbor has shit on what just happened to the, to the United States. This is a, this is an attack uh, that is just without precedent. And I feel that we're going to be at war for the next two decades. Um, and when I spoke to him wow. just a couple months, yeah, right. I just got um, chills hearing that because nobody it, thought that. Nobody. Dude, even... It was insane. Wow. It, like I, I ran into him uh, again just a couple months ago. And I was like, hey, man, do you remember saying that? He's like, yeah, I, I had no idea how right I was going to be. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was spot on, man. Two so decades. You got any lot of numbers? I mean, dude, yeah, right. Like, uh, if so. 
I, I got, I mean, genuinely, genuinely just got chills hearing that saying, like, yeah. to think that someone would say, we'll be at war for the next 20 years. He was yeah. the only person in the world who thought that yeah. at that point. In yeah. Time. yeah. I, I mean, I think we all thought that we were going to go in and, you know, uh, a shock and all get the hell out. Exactly. Shock and all crush, find, find Osama bin Laden. Like we thought we would find him in, you know, the first six months oh. of the war. Obviously that didn't happen. Well, we, we, we sort of did though. We just didn't actually, yeah, we, we just found kinda, him. We, we just didn't actually would. get our hands on him. We like, just didn't get him. We knew where he right. was and we knew what he yeah. was doing and we had him, but you know, yeah. Uh, hey, Dalton Fury, right? Uh, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with him, uh, but regardless, and may he rest in peace, by the way, Dalton Fury was the pen name of, of, a of a former, um, uh, Army Special Ops guy who uh, was on the ground in Tora Bora in December 2001. Yeah. The, the time that I was referencing Anaconda. when we actually had Osama bin Laden in our sights and, you know, Afghan proxies and warlords and failure to secure the back door with ground troops and a whole bunch of other things that uh, yeah. let him sneak out the door for the next 10 years. But That's right, man. Right out the are. back door. Right out the back door. Yeah. So, um, but let me ask you, so you're in PTRR at this time, so you haven't actually started buds did any of that change your sort of mindset at all like you know you went from this guy who wanted to be part of a team yeah. now you're being part of a team that's going to end up in combat at some point in time yeah so for is sure there a mental shift for you absolutely there was you know uh it definitely drove home the reality of what it was we were doing i mean there's there's a lot of guys who show up at buds um who quite frankly 100 percent honesty they are there just to be cool right they 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 want to be they there's some guys that want to be seals so that they can be cool, but there's they also want the guys Velcro who, and the dip they, and the gear and you know yeah right <laughs> you know they 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 want to they want to wear the trident they they want to wear their uh you know back then I forget the glasses that our uh, nets back then now they're gator glasses you know they're uh, so yeah. popular anyhow um, it, it was Oakleys it, in the Green Beret world we always had yeah. Oakleys <laughs> right they came um, standard issue when I showed up here take these I'm like yeah really? wow. yeah yeah so the uh, yeah funny story real quick uh, and then I'll come back. Um, but I remember as a, as an O four in the seals, I was, I was rocking my Arnett's and I had this, uh, this O two come up to me. He's like, Hey, sir. Um, you know, why do all the old seals now I'm an O four at this time. I don't, I don't consider myself <laughs> old, but he's like, why do all the old seals wear Arnett's and the young seals wear gator glasses? And I was like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you just called me old. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so like I, I went and I went to supply and got issued a, a set of uh, Gator glasses. Gator glasses that day. immediately. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> I, I wanted to be one of the young guys. But anyway, uh, so I digress. Uh, coming back to the reality that set in, um, you know, uh, again, that that instructor stood up on the podium saying, hey, we're going to be at war for the next 20 years. But, it, you know, it really took the the cool guy factor out of being the seal it, it it really drove home the fact hey we are going to be seals we are going to be deploying we are going to be going to war for the next two decades at least um and and you know obviously when when you go to war within the special operations community um it's not like you're going to uh win hearts and minds now granted that was a part of what we do but obviously obviously we do more than that with the direct action and and we lose friends and brothers along the way. And, you know, before you hit record on this show, we were talking about post-traumatic stress and, and mental health. And that's the, the world that I work in now, even within my, my leadership uh, company that I run, I, I do a lot of mental health and wellness. Um, and that is something that has just now come to the forefront of, of the military is, yeah. is mental health and mental wellness. Um, 
And I think a lot of it had to do with that two decades plus that we were at war um, and the toll that it took emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually on those who were uh, on the front lines. You know, and again, I mean, we can Monday morning quarterback this all we want, but the sad part is, is that we didn't learn a damn thing from Vietnam from that standpoint. Um, And we should have, right? Um, We we went through 10, 15 years of, you know, conflict to war to whatever you want to call it. Uh, and never address it with the Vietnam veterans and, and to their detriment and our detriment as a as a military, you know, we ended up in this spot. And, you know, I speak from personal experience with my own, you know, PTSD and everything else. You know, it, it's a this is a long, long journey for a lot of us. Um, and, it, and it doesn't end. Uh, you, you, you manage PTSD, you live with it. Uh, it doesn't go away right. um, like any other disease, if you will, alcoholism, drug addiction. These, these are things that you have to live with every single day. Uh, and demons or, or just things that you have to fight and overcome every single day. And some days you have good days and some days you have bad days. But, you know, the fact that we're in a place right now where we're starting to normalize these conversations for members of the military means at least we're making some sort of progress, right? And I think that is that's yep. paramount. Unfortunately, again, you know, uh, I finished my last deployment um, in 2011. I was there for the closeout of Iraq. And even then, that was never a thing. It wasn't a thing to discuss it. And we had been in war for 10 years and eight, eight right. years in Baghdad and Iraq and everything else. And um, we've just we've only finally now started to turn the corner. Better late than never. But, you know, alas, uh, the, the point yeah, I mean, is that we're at least when, when we're you're, having the conversation. When you're running and gunning, you know, it it's, feels like there's no time to take a knee and process what it is you've seen, what it is you've done. Uh, what it is you haven't done, you know, sometimes there's regret about things that you didn't do on the yep. battlefield and that, you know, m- maybe we'll get into that in the conversation. But um, when you do finally take a knee, it might be 10, 15 years later, and then you've got a lot more to unpack. Exactly. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, uh, you've got a lot more to unpack. And just like if you're at your house and you've been living there for 10 or 15 years and now you're moving and you get in the attic or the basement and you've got all these boxes that you've put in there for years and you haven't processed and unpacked. Now it's time to be like, what's in this box? And you realize how much stuff is in the box. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot more shit in that box than you thought it was. Yeah. A lot more stuff in that box and a lot more boxes than you're uh, aware of. Right. Um, and you now you got to like any good military person, we compartmentalize. We put boxes inside exactly. boxes. So, 100%, you know. <laughs> 100%, man. <laughs> it's Russian yeah. dolls all over again. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, yeah, all so. right. So you start the Bud's experience. Um, and I always ask this of everybody who went through it because I'm just so curious of the how everybody perceives the stress and how everybody perceives the stimulus. Because I, and I, I'm never surprised because I almost never get the same answer. Um, but from hell week on, you know, and obviously hell week being the, the major stressor of what goes on, um, was, was buds more of a physical challenge for you or a mental challenge for you? Uh, definitely mental a hundred percent. Um, you know, obviously the physical side ties to the, the mental side, but there's, you know, lack of sleep, um, having to do dive tables and figuring out demo charts and, and everything else, uh, with very little sleep, um, being put through the the physical ringer, even after hell week, uh, that there's, there's definitely, um, a physical aspect to it, but that ties to the, the mental side, um, you know, dive physics going through pool comp, uh, for, again, for those who may be listening for the first time, the buds is divided into three phases, First phase is kind of the physical phase, and then that that kind of culminates um, with Hell Week, uh, 
there's there's one or two weeks after that depending on when you start uh hell week but then second phase is dive phase where you learn how to do the diving uh both on open and closed circuit rigs and then third phase is land warfare where you learn kind of shoot move and communicate and blow stuff up and that that second and third phase there's a lot of mental fatigue that sets in um, not just from the physical side but also the classroom work the studying the learning and, and memorizing um, and then putting it into practical practice um, that's it, it's definitely mental side was there ever and, a moment you thought you weren't going to make it <laughs> i would say uh that anybody who says no I, I think they're lying uh <laughs> yes 100 percent. there were there were times when i was like man uh, this is, I, I think I may have bitten off more than more I can chew here. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember, I, I personally uh, struggled on the obstacle course. I was a great runner, great swimmer, and the obstacle course I sucked at. And even more specifically on the obstacle course, there's one obstacle where you come down the slide for life, uh, which is a rope that you, you climb a tower and then you come down this rope. Right after that slide for life, there's another uh, obstacle called the rope transfer or the rope swing. And you grab a rope, you run, grab a rope, and you put yourself back on top of another platform. And for some reason, I could not do that. Um, and the instructors uh, definitely saw that I struggled with that. And, of course, as soon as the instructors find any kind of weakness or see any kind of weakness, they, they attack. Yep. They attack, right? Um, so they they had me try to do that during hell week and you know i i did it but i wasn't very good at it and they of course they're like well sir if you can't do this you you shouldn't be a leader of men and that's what really started getting into my head that's it wasn't the, that's the physical the, the, side the, the it, mind it, f right yeah there. yeah the mind f right it was like oh maybe i am in the wrong place maybe i shouldn't be a, a leader of men on the battlefield a leader of special operators on the battlefield maybe i don't deserve to be there maybe that kind of thing and so that's really what when that mind f when they started playing those games and it got in my head that's when i started to think that i i needed to quit it wasn't it wasn't just the the cold it wasn't just the the long nights it wasn't the you know the pain from the physical side i mean granted that de definitely played into it but it was more the do I deserve to be here kind of question that I was asking yeah, myself. Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, the self-doubt thing to me um, is, is the most human way to, to make people fail. It's the easiest and most human way. Like, again, to a certain extent, people who are in good physical shape can handle a lot of physical things. Right. You know, I feel like I have a high pain threshold. You know, I feel like I, that, I, that I, you know, I can operate off little stuff. I mean, I've done it before. You know, I, I, I've carried heavy rucksacks. I've done all these things. But it's the one thing, you know, where, where we're all wondering to a certain extent ourselves, am I good enough? Right. Am, right. am, I, am I, you know, let's get into the, the mental health. Am I worthy enough? Like whether it's in human relationships or anything else, that self-doubt is the one thing that will cause you to fail. And, and in reality... In the special operations community, whether it is Navy SEALs, Green Berets, or, or Delta, whatever it may be, um, it's removal of that self-doubt or the ignorance of that self-doubt and going forward is what separates those who excel in the, that arena and those who don't. Because in reality, that self-doubt could be a moment where life and death literally exists in a split second. And right. how quickly you can dispel that notion of self-doubt, react, move on, move, shoot, communicate, as you said – and do the things that are needed to do to win in battle, to save your teammate, to do whatever it may be, is ultimately what, again, separates those who, who 
are in that community and those who are not. And I, I think it's a fair and very valid barometer upon which to measure people. Right. Oh, no, 100%. I mean, our BUDS plaque, you know, the plaque that you give to BUDS as a class at the end of everything, um, it said too dumb to quit. Like it had the picture of all of us that still were there and it said too dumb to quit. And I I think there's a, there's some, there's honesty, some value I mean, in that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not dumb, but I, I think when we just step back and we're like, okay, yeah, that self-doubt's creeping in, but I'm just going to put it down. Also, kind of compartmentalize, like we talked about before. You put it down somewhere else, and you're just dumb, and you just move on. <laughs> you move on, and that's uh, that's what I think uh, helped us to get through. So, one more, one more on buds. Uh, I ask yeah. this question a lot too. You know, I mean, for those who don't know, or maybe first-time listeners, you can choose to drop on your own from buds. You can you can DOR drop on request, go ring the bell, and get the hell out of Dodge. Say I've had enough. This is right. not for me and move on, which again, and I don't think necessarily anybody in Bud's looks sideways at, they understand it's not for everybody. Some people want to give it a shot and they're just not cut out for it. And that's fine. Uh, but was there anybody who dropped on requests that made you go, Whoa, they just yeah. quit. Oh yeah. They were a because lot. that's the ultimate wake up. Cause you look around, you're always value, you know, evaluating yourself against your peers in that environment. Sure. You have to, and you're getting ranked re- relentlessly inside that environment. They're always racking and stacking who's at the top and who's not. It's just the nature of what we do in the military. And so when you look at somebody and go, well, that guy's getting through. I mean, obviously I'm not as good as that guy. I know that much, yeah. you know, and then that person drops and you go, Whoa. Now, some people yeah. look at that as the wake up call and go, well, if he can't make it, how am I going to do it? But other people go, well, guess what? You know what? Maybe I am stronger than that dude. Maybe I am better than that guy. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think um, those who make it through experience both of those, uh, those emotions. Oh, wow, that guy, that guy quit. Maybe I should quit. But then the the other side of your brain kicks in. You're like, oh, you know what? Maybe he quit it. He quit for one reason or another. He, he quit because his family, he quit because whatever. And you're like, okay, you kind of justify their quitting. And, and you say, okay, well, now I, I just need to carry the load that they were carrying before. I, I need to make it to the next goalpost. I need to make it to the finish line. The, the people who can't see the reasons that someone quits, they just see, oh, wow, that physical stud that I'm not as good at as um, they quit, then they, they normally end up going to. Like if a physical stud, and quite honestly, a lot of the time, the the officers who show up are uh, in in incredible shape, and the only reason I say that is because to get two buds as an officer, there's more wickets to go through. So uh, to show up at buds as an officer, you're normally um, in in a, a little bit better shape than the average enlisted guy. Now that's obviously not across the board, but just average. Um, now the reason I say that is a lot of the time when an officer quits four or five enlisted guys will quit with them. Really? They'll, yeah. They'll look up at that officer and say exactly what you were saying before. Wow. That physical stud, that leader of men quit. There's no way I'm going to make it. And that's why when, when an officer quits, there's no coming back. Um, as an enlisted guy, at least back when I went through, I don't know if this is still the case as an enlisted guy. Um, if you quit, um, you can come back. As an officer, you don't come back yeah. ever. And again, uh, and I, I understand that. Yeah. I, I, yep. I, I'm always fascinated by the, 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 the experience of BUDS and how people uh, you know, deal with it. Um, it, it to me, it's, it's, 
it's one of those things where it's the ultimate convergence of physical and mental duress and, and being able to overcome it all. So, I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour about the minutia of buds every single day. And I'm sure we'd have a bunch <laughs> of laughs because I'm sure there was one class clown and I'm sure there was one guy who was way too uptight. And you know, the one guy who decided to, to, to buddy bleep everybody uh, at some point in time, we got put out. I mean, you know, all the stories are there. I'm sure they are, but right. uh, let's move on. All right. So uh, yeah. you graduate buds. Um, now, how quickly do you get to, your your platoon um and you know i'm sure there's a little bit of a not a hazing process because you're an officer but there's still a little bit of a learning curve for you to get through yeah and how quickly do you get to your first deployment yeah so i i took a, a little bit of a different route uh than than most seals at that time um i i well all seals after buds they go through seal qualification right. training um which is another six month period that's mm-hmm. more where Okay, buds is like the wicket that you have to get through to get into SEALs. Um, SEAL qualification training is more like the gentleman's course where they refine you. They actually start training you on the stuff that you're going to be doing in the SEAL teams. That's six months. You get some jump school in there. You get some uh, cold uh, cold weather training up in Alaska. So all SEALs do that. But then after that, I went through SEAL delivery vehicle training. So the, the SDV, which is... Uh, back then, uh, it's still used to this day, but it's uh, there's other things that are out there as well. Um, it's uh, basically a miniature submarine. It's a it's a submersible, but you're 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 wet the whole time you're in it. Mm-hmm. You're diving it uh, while you're driving it, diving and driving it. Um, so if you look up SDV Seal Delivery Vehicle, you'll see what I'm talking about. But um, that course was down in Panama City, Florida, and that was a you know another three months or three and a half months. Uh, training before I get to my SEAL team. So do that, finally show up at the SEAL team, you know, maybe 12 months after. Uh, when what you month and in. year was this? Yeah. So this was, I graduated uh, SEAL qualification training in February of 2002. No, that's not, uh, February 2003, sorry. And then uh, graduate SDV school in like May of 2003. And then from there, I show up at SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 2, which is in Virginia Beach. Um, and, uh, you know, then I, I get put in my platoon and, you know, go start going through the platoon training, do, a, you know, do a couple of uh, short, uh, I wouldn't call them deployments, short uh, trips overseas, um, Panama, uh, UAE, some of the, the stuff that you listed at the beginning, the other work that I did uh, overseas. Uh, with the platoon. And then finally, uh, it comes time for our deployment window as a platoon. Now, SEAL delivery vehicle, the missions that we do as SDV guys are uh, highly specialized, and they're pretty few and far between. So when it comes time for your deployment window, if there's not an actual SDV mission available for you, then you end up getting normally, you end up getting attached to another SEAL team. So in my case, uh, and this is 2005, um, I get attached to SEAL Team 10. Now, I'm not a SEAL Team 10 member. I'm still a SEAL delivery vehicle guy, but I'm attached to SEAL Team 10 as we deploy to Afghanistan. Now, uh, this ties into Operation Red Wings, which we'll get into here shortly. But SDV guys, because our mission is somewhat um, sneaky, if you will, Um, We do a lot of the surveillance and reconnaissance missions um, from a submarine in the SDV, and we do that all over the world. Well, when you deploy with a regular, quote-unquote, regular SEAL team, 
Uh, and uh, please don't take that as uh, as a offense to the, no. those who are listening. Uh, I, I'm just meaning a, a, a traditional you're, you're, seal. Only team. your seal brethren would, would would find offense in that. Yeah. Oh, and, and they they would. You know, there was okay. a time when there was a lot of uh, shit talking between the SDV teams and the seal teams. Yeah. Like yeah. they they would call us SDJV. Then you know, hey, we're oh, JV yeah. seals okay. and vice gotcha. versa. Yeah. But anyhow, that that has come a long way since uh you know 2005. So anyway, uh, I. I attached to SEAL Team 10 along with uh, three or four other guys from SDV Team 2. Um, and we were the surveillance and reconnaissance specialists with SEAL Team 10. And then there were guys from SDV Team 1, which is in Hawaii, also attached to SEAL Team 10. And that was Michael Murphy and Marcus Luttrell, Matt Axelson, those guys who were from SDV Team 1. So we, the SDV Team 1 and SDV Team 2 guys, are the surveillance and reconnaissance um, experts, if you will, attached to SEAL Team 10 in Bagram, Afghanistan in 2005. Um, so we, both elements, are going out and doing surveillance and reconnaissance missions. And myself and Michael Murphy were both young lieutenants at the time, lieutenant in the Navy 03. Uh, so we're doing doing these missions, flip-flopping who's leading these missions. And the Red Wings mission comes along. And I'm at the time working in the Joint Operations Center. And when this mission comes across the table as something that the the Naval Special Warfare Task Unit, us, SEAL Team 10, um, could do. I looked at it, and the week prior, they had lost a lot of Marines in that same valley. Um, The assets uh, that were available were not what we needed. We, we being special operations, we wanted uh, task force 160, which is the special operations air regiment to yep. support this particular mm-hmm. operation. They weren't available. Um, we wanted specific gunships. We wanted specific surveillance and reconnaissance, the ISR assets, and they weren't available. And I, I wrote, uh, I raised it to the leadership and said, Hey, look, this, the timing for this mission isn't right. There's too much risk, uh, not enough reward. And, uh, they were like, hey, you know what? We're we're doing this mission, uh, regardless if you want to take it or not. We're doing it. And so, so this is where my my story, my involvement with Red Wings comes can, in. Can it's, I pause uh, you there real quick? Yeah. Uh, just because I, I, I feel this is worthwhile because I've had this conversation mm. over different battles. I mean, you can go back to, um, you know, uh, uh, the outpost and, and the battle in, in, in uh, yeah. 2009 uh, in in, in in Afghanistan, and why don't why am I drawing a blank on on the name of it? Um, but regardless, uh, we've interviewed several people from from that in the movie The Outpost. But you know the decisions that are made at higher levels, yeah. um, and and where they are made and how they are made, and you get those. Look, I understand we all follow orders. That doesn't mean the benefit of hindsight. Um, you know, we, we should do things differently, and we're always compelled to evaluate how we make decisions and why we make them in the military and what the cost of those decisions is. Now with some time, obviously, to be away from that, um, do you feel in the big picture the decision that was made was the right one, and was it justified in doing so? No. Uh, okay. No, 100%. I think it was the wrong wrong decision. Wrong decision uh, by the leadership, um, wrong decision on my part as well in not pushing back harder on that operation. And that's that's really where I feel a lot of my mental health challenges come mm-hmm. from is is not pushing back hard enough on that operation. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like um, 
I could have Cop- pushed harder. It just popped into my head. I'm sorry. Cop Keating was the uh, yeah, yeah, there the it is. I was talking yep. about. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Yep. I apologize. Um, no, man, all good. Uh, so that um, lack of pushback and then obviously the the fallout of that operation, and again, for your listeners who may be first-time listeners or who may not be familiar with this operation, we sent uh, a, a surveillance and reconnaissance element out uh, to observe a, a compound for somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. They were co- compromised by goat herders. There was a big ethical dilemma about what to do on the on the side of the mountain with these goat herders. Should we should we kill them? Well, they're non-combatants. You can't really do that. Should we tie them up? Well, tying them up is basically killing them um, because they probably starve or, or die on the on the mountainside. So really, the the decision uh, was made to let them go. And and as soon as they were let go, they went down this the side of the mountain and told the people in the compound that there were quote unquote soldiers on the on the mountain and they sent a, a lot of fighters up the mountainside massive firefight ensues uh three of the four uh surveillance and reconnaissance seals were killed so michael murphy matt axelson and danny deets were killed on the side of the mountain and then marcus luttrell is, is the famous lone survivor from that particular side of that operation just before murph was killed um, he exposed himself to enemy fire so that he could make communications back to higher headquarters. And, uh, you know, he gets on the phone, tells them that he's got men dying, um, that he needs a quick reaction force, and then is shot in the back while he's on that phone um, and dies. And the quick reaction force gets spun up. They send some uh, CH-47s out with uh with you know 16 more seals aboard now they do not have gunship support they fly out there as two ch-47s the traditional thing was fly the ch-47s with gunship support um with isr and it's daytime so normally we use conventional forces for daytime insertion the conventional forces at this time are not available so we actually ended up using the special operations air regiment helicopters they do not fly during the daytime typically mm-hmm. they did for this operation they level out the first ch-47 levels out to send in the fast road team and they they ended up getting shot down so eight uh, army night stalkers aboard that first ch-47 and eight seals aboard that first ch-47 so 16 total uh, on that first helicopter die second helicopter flies off um, because there's too much risk and uh, we lost the three guys on the ground so total loss of life that day is 19 uh, special operator uh, special operators between the seals and the army night stalkers so um, coming back to was the operation uh, you know should it have been done i don't believe so was it done correctly I don't believe so. It was a it was a goat rope from the get go, uh, from the planning to the insertion. I mean the the insertion when they inserted these special operate or sorry this surveillance and reconnaissance mission, you guys um, they were supposed to bring the fast rope back into the helicopter. They cut a fast rope away and let it you know fly down to to the ground in enemy territory. Now you've got four guys on the ground surveillance and reconnaissance team that are supposed to cache this heavy fast rope and if they don't then there's an basically announcing to the world that there's, there's a, a signal there's yeah it's a signal so because they, they by the spe- way afghan goat herders don't have heavy ropes just laying around that's exactly, it's not right. it's not in their their toolkit right so now they have to spend time 
burying this heavy rope and now they're behind their timeline. Um, the, you know, the helicopters that we had on, on, uh, tasked to be the quick reaction force, they got tasked to something else, which is why we ended up using the SOAR guys. Uh, we didn't have the gunships. There were, there were just so many mistakes made. Now I'm definitely Monday morning quarterbacking this, right. Um, but I, I was there firsthand. So I, I well, feel that I, there's def- yeah, I mean, as you're watching this unfold in the operations center, yeah, uh, what's going through your mind? Like, what's the, the emotional feeling? Like, uh, uh, do you look, you guys are trained to believe you can overcome anything, right? right? So there's, I mean, things you plan for things to go wrong. It's like you ever go into an operation and go, well, this thing's just going to go off exactly like we thought. We yeah. know better. Like we just right. generally know we have a plan. We have contingency plans. We have backups that are contingency plans, but right. inevitably all that stuff at times goes out the window because the shit hits the fan. And even your backup to your backup is not what you ever thought it was going to be. But still, are you right. someone in the jock watching this thing going, okay, look, we, we hit a snag here. They'll be fine. They'll overcome this thing. Or are you, is you, do you get a sense immediately like, oh, this is effed. Like, we're, we're in deep, you know what, right Yeah, now. I'll, I'll be honest, man. As soon as they uh, fell behind their timeline because they had to cache that fast rope, I was like, man, this is, this is going to be uh, a mess. Then they they weren't able to make it they, their checkpoints uh, on time. They were setting up their their surveillance uh, kind of observation post uh, later in the in the evening or I guess earlier um, in the daytime. So it, it, they start in the day. Now they're they're setting up their their observation point when that should have been done at night. Um, and and this is no fault of their own. It's just the timeline. Um, so they're, they're basically putting themselves at risk. Then the communication sucked. Danny Dietz was the communications guy in that operation. Wasn't able to make comms as, as well as he could have normally. It's just the area of the mountains, uh, had bad, bad spots, you know, sunspots, yeah. everything else that comes into play with comms. Um, so he struggled to make comms. Um, we were back at the operation center, uh, had a feeling that things were going to go sideways. Then we get a call back. Hey, we've been compromised by some goat herders and we're, we're moving. That's what we got back at the operations center. Hey, Can we've I- been compromised and we're moving. Okay. So now, now they're moving from their observation point to another spot in daylight. Um, so there was, there was all sorts of things that were uh, going wrong. Um, and I had a bad feeling. And then of course we get the call from Murph and, uh, in contact. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you, because I'm just curious. And again, uh, forgive the ignorance. If, if this is an ignorant question, um, you know, why didn't they just hold on to the guys, call for an airlift, and then as the airlift was coming in, then let them go? Like, I mean, or or, or, or carry the walk the guys with them to the spot where an LZ or whatever could get in, yeah. and then say, okay, now get now, now I'll let you walk out. Like, I, I'm, I, you know, again, I have the benefit of hindsight here. Sure. You know, seventeen so, years later, uh, but still. You know, I'm wondering if that sort of conversation ever went on. Did you, did you guys just trust Mike Murphy on the ground to make the call, and that was that? Well, well, yes, we did trust Mike to to make the call, but I will also tell you there was some uh, culture at play here. And what I mean by that is, oh, I know where you're going. Uh, uh, well, well, I'll, I'll, I'm not sure you do. We'll okay, see. I hope uh, so, not. Okay. So, yeah, prior prior to SEAL Team Ten being on the ground, there SEAL Team Eight was on. So, you know, uh, April 2005, SEAL Team Ten comes and replaces in place uh, SEAL Team Eight. Well, with SEAL Team Eight were some other SEAL delivery vehicle guys, the reconnaissance guys, and a very similar situation had happened to them. They were out in the field doing a surveillance and reconnaissance mission. They got compromised and they called for extract. They called for extract immediately. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they held on to the people who had compromised them, did exactly what you said. Okay. And then when they got back to the compound, and I've never, I've never told, I've never shared their story, this story before uh, on a podcast, but, uh, and I'll probably get beat up a little bit by my, my uh, teammates. But when they got back to the compound, uh, they were mocked. They were, they were called, you know, all sorts of names, weak, uh, scared, cowards, and other names for not staying out there after they had been compromised. So now they had kind of set this precedent that if you called for compromise on a surveillance and reconnaissance mission, then you were going to be looked at as a coward, as weak. Um, I think that played into some of the decision-making on the ground that day. Um, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I, I have a feeling I, I, that I grumble because, look, there's a difference between fortitude and being in the fight and everything else. Yeah. And machismo and ego. Oh, 100%. Right? Machismo and ego will lead you to make bad decisions and stupid decisions because yeah, you're you know, pride. And look, and again, this isn't just about this particular scenario. I've seen that in regular garrison throughout my military career because I'm the dude in charge. We're just going to do this my way instead of, yeah. you know, looking at things objectively and, and looking around you at the situation and trying to figure out what's best for everybody. That's super frustrating. I'm not going to make any judgments about what, what is or what isn't um, other yeah. than based off of what you told me. And again, it's only one perspective and it's your perspective and I respect it. And I won't, you know, if somebody was to, to voice something differently, I would, I would obviously listen with the same openness I'm listening to you with. But, you know, again, I, knowing what I know of the military after 23 plus years of still wearing a uniform, that sort of stuff I have zero tolerance for. Like I just generally as a leader, I don't. That plays yeah. nothing into, it's never played into my decisions. It's never played into anything that, that I've ever, you know, made, whether it's been in combat or in any other leadership role. It's never been about because, you know, oh, this is how this is going to look to people or this is what people are going to think. No, I do what's right. And what yeah. is the best decision for everybody involved? Uh, and that is incumbent upon all leaders. And the idea that anybody would downgrade one of their teammates, um, well, I understand it. And especially in that community, again, I'm not part of it, but you know, I certainly understand the mentality of it because I've, I've, I've worked with Green Berets and I've, I've deployed with them. So I understand that sort of idea on the periphery. But, man, that's got to be frustrating. Yeah, um, it, it is, especially, you know, Looking back uh, again, hindsight being twenty twenty, uh, I think that may have played into the psyche of the of the of the decision and how it went down. Um, if if that previous operation hadn't gone down the way it had, um, would would Red Wings have changed the outcome of Red Wings? Would that yeah. change? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you don't. Obviously there's no way to know. Sure, but, right? But, you uh, can't. You can't say for yeah, sure. And again, a lot of conjecture um, on my part. It's conject- the only people who know, unfortunately, are not with us anymore, right? right. Like, they, you know, they're, they're not part of, you know, maybe Marcus Luttrell might be able to shed some, some light on it. But regardless, you know, um, nobody should call in a question. And, and I w- I'll ask this question. I'll say this, then I'll ask the question. Nobody should call in a question Mike Murphy's leadership or his, his skills as an officer or his ability to, to be in command um, because there's nothing to indicate uh, from anything I've read about him. Uh, and oh, by the way, good Long Island boy. All good things come from Long Island. Remember that. Um, as myself, a Long Island guy. But, you know, I, I, nothing I've ever read about Mike is, would ever lead me to believe he was anything other than a stellar officer and a stellar leader and, and an outstanding SEAL. But what was your relationship with Mike 
Uh, I know you said you, you kind of had worked side by side with him. What was your yeah. relationship with him prior to Red Wings happening? Uh, uh, Mike and I were friends. Uh, we, we had only met uh, when he arrived in Afghanistan. We arrived uh, about three weeks before they did. Um, and, you know, we, we bonded very quickly. He had a small element that he was leading. I had a small element that I was leading. We were both surveillance and reconnaissance experts. And then, and then we were SEALs. So we, we bonded pretty quickly. Um, and, and he was, I, I, please don't misunderstand my, my previous no, statements. I, I, he was, he was a fantastic leader, uh, and, and did what he needed to do when he needed to do it, how he needed to do it. Um, I think the situation just unfolded poorly for him and, and obviously the rest involved. Um, but no, Mike, Mike and I were friends. Um, Mike, uh, you know, he's, he carried, um, some, talking about unpacking mental health boxes. Uh, he had, he had just uh, within maybe six months prior to that, uh, he had shot a friend of mine, uh, in, in training. Uh, so Michael Murphy had, had shot uh, a, a fellow buddy of mine, a Naval Academy uh, classmate and Bud's classmate of mine. Um, and there was, there was a little bit of, uh, question there, but, you know, it happens in training. It happens in training. So once I met Murph and I talked with him and I talked through it all, you know, I kind of understood how it happened and uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, but we, we ended up bonding and, and becoming good friends and then obviously uh, lost him along the way. Um, and I flew home uh, with Murph's body and Danny Dietz's body. Oh, wow. I flew back from the, from, from Afghanistan with, with them um, <laughs> and funny enough, not funny, but ironically enough, I flew back with Matt Leathers, who ended up dying, uh, you know, maybe 10 years later in a, in a kind of a freak, uh, free diving accident. But anyhow, uh, he and I, Matt Leathers and I flew back from Afghanistan. We were still in our operational, uh, gear, which, uh, for the SEALs, you know, there, there is the cami gear, but there's also the, you know, the, the PSD gear, like collared shirt, pants and a, and a pistol. And we fly back with that. And we fly into Dover, Delaware, and we're, we're met by, uh, uh, you know, a, a Marine gunnery sergeant in full garrison. And he's like, hey, I'm looking for the escorts. And we're like, we are the escorts. And he's like, Navy, you guys, you Navy, always screw this up. You're supposed to be in full dress uniforms when you escort bodies back, which I understand the, the spirit behind that. But I got to be honest, I didn't deploy to Afghanistan with a, with a dress uniform. Yeah, seriously. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but, uh, you know. I understood it. And I told him what the situation was. And he's like, okay, gotcha, sir. Hey, we'll, we'll take care of these guys. So, uh, you know, Murph and, and Danny were, were taken care of. And I took the, the flag. So Murph and Danny, they were flown out of uh, the field in their, in their body bags with flags on top of the body bags. And I um, flew back with the flag that was on Danny's and I took it back to his now widow, um, you know, Landed in Dover, Delaware, drove back to Virginia Beach, which I don't know, three and a half hours, I forget. Um, went straight to Danny's widow's house. I was married at the time to my, my first wife, and I went straight to Danny's widow's house rather than going to my house. Uh, present her the flag, spent a couple hours with her, letting her know what had happened, letting her know how things had gone down. And then finally drive back to my house, you know, reconnect with my wife at the time. And I basically acted like nothing had happened. Uh, I was like, well, it's, it's time to move on for the next mission, the next deployment, the next training cycle and didn't do anything as far as mental health. Didn't, didn't talk to a counselor, didn't do anything. 
but I was hurting. I was hurting, man. Uh, there was a lot of pain inside, a lot of guilt, a lot of uh, a, a lot of guilt about not pushing back against that operation hard enough. A lot of hey, would I w- would things have been different if I had uh, those kinds of things, and that ultimately led me to what I'm doing now. You know, I, I can talk through my other deployments, but nothing's super exciting. Nothing that you wouldn't um, kind of expect to happen on a SEAL SEAL deployment um, doing the direct action missions. But that first deployment of mine weighed on my mind, on my psyche for the rest of my career. And I uh, I self-medicated with alcohol, with prescription medications, um, and then finally found help through through counseling and, uh, you know, this is going to probably sound woo-woo to some folks, but meditation. Uh, meditation is what has really helped to change my life um, and, quite honestly, what I believe saved my life. So I, I do want to hear more about that. And, yeah, I, I, I meditated for a little bit. Then I quit. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, I, it, I need to get back into it. Um, look, only only if you're comfortable. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the conversation you had with uh, with Danny Dietz's widow or something that sticks out about it to you. I mean, obviously, it's probably the hardest conversation you may have had in your entire life. Um, yeah. You know, but anything about that conversation that sticks out with you that sort of still resonates? Um, you know, I, I want to uh, respect sure, Patsy no, and, and, and what, what we discussed. But the, I mean, the, the gist of it was, you know, I, I won't share what she shared with me or, or what she asked of me, but I'll, I'll tell you that the, the gist of the conversation was that, that I, I knew Danny. He was one of the uh, warriors' warrior. Uh, right. Like he, he did everything right. Um, he put it all on the line, every single operation, but I also remember Danny specifically pulling me aside before that operation. And this was not the norm. And he said, sir, I'm scared. I'm scared that this operation is not going to go down. Right. And I did share that with Patsy. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest of the conversation was mostly working to console her. Um, but yeah, that when, when one of your guys says that to you as a leader, I know, I know that this sort of canned response, right? Um, canned, canned is not the right word. I know this sort of empathetic response. Hey, I'm with you. I'm scared too. You know, yeah. we have our job. We have our duty. This is, you know, whether we like it or not, this is what we signed up for. Let's go out there, chew gum, kick ass, uh, and, <laughs> and, and do, it, do it to the best of our ability, and we're going to be okay. That's what we all say. That's what we, we would say at leaders. I mean, empathy is all you can give in that moment. Right? right. Because, you know, pretending you're not scared, I think, is foolish. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it certainly disconnects you from somebody who is who is opening up to you um, to to share a very real thing. Um, and as warriors, whether it is as the elite level that you're at or even the level that I was at, you're not we're not trained to be scared. Right. We're, it's not it's a, it's not part of your 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 basic issue items here. Here's some fear. Please, <laughs> please share it with everybody. Right. right. Here, here's your boots. Here's your uniform and some fear. Um, no, that's, that's, that's not how it works. So, you know, um, but what well, are you, when you're hearing that, what are you thinking and saying? I mean, I, like I said, I kind of know the canned response you gave him, but yeah. what's really going on in your mind? Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, the canned response, there's, there's some value in that, but I, I also remember telling, uh, Danny and the, you know, this is trite now it's become trite is that, you know, being, being brave or being courageous doesn't mean the absence of fear. fear it right? means yeah. going forth in the face of fear. 
And I, I told him that, and I could see that he was bucking up, right? He was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm scared, but I'm still going to do it. And that was his courage. That was his bravery. That was his, his heroism. That's who he was through and through. Um, but in the back of my mind, for him to come to me uh, before that operation, say that after the operations that we had done in the past, uh, some of the operations that he had been in on the past, in the past, that scared me. It scared me knowing that he was scared um, and it, not just knowing that he was scared, but knowing that he would admit it to me um, with his past, with his background. Um, so, you know, that just added to my anxiety uh, for, yeah. for him and for the operation. And, you know, again, knowing that I, I, I knew uh, in, in the deepest part of my soul that that operation was going to go sideways. One uh, one more in, in reference to the conversation with with Danny's widow, uh, and again, it's it's around it. So I, 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 yeah, I one hundred percent respect your your approach to this whole thing and and to Danny's widow. So um, I'm sure the question came up, why? You know, then why do this? Why did you go it? If you thought like why, and that ultimately is a question that you don't necessarily have an answer to. Do you remember what sort of you said when asked why, or do you have a better clarity on the answer of why now? Uh, no, I've got less of a clarity of the answer right now. Uh, yeah. Um, as far as, you know, why did we do that operation? Why did we lose, uh, 19 amazing men, um, fathers, husbands, sons, fiancés, you know, um, brothers, everything else. Um, no, I, I, I don't have a reason. I don't have clarity on why we did that operation. Um, I, and, and I think if you ask some of the highest leadership at the time, um, I remember coming back to Danny's funeral. Uh, it was in uh, Littleton, Colorado, which I live in Col- Colorado Springs. And there's a there's a monument to Danny in Littleton, Colorado now and a highway named after him. And I remember coming back and at his funeral, you know, the SOCOM commander that was there. And, uh, you know, he knew that I was part of the operation. He came up to me. He's like, John, why did we do this? And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, "Holy shit, sir! You're the That's one your- asking. <laughs> you're the one asking me that, right? Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why we did it, honestly. And uh, yeah, to this day, I, I can't answer that. Um, you know, and, and if Pat's, Patsy or anyone else related to any of the men that that died, uh, you know, I, I think they they died fighting for their country. Um, but I personally don't understand if, that particular operation. It, it, let's, again, hindsight, this Monday morning quarterbacking. Let's say you had jumped up and down on every desk in that joint operations center and said, no, 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 we're not going, we're not going, we're not going. Yeah. Do you ultimately believe it might have changed the outcome of the decision to do it? Good question. Um, because you're yeah, sitting here I mean, telling me you, in your heart you knew it was wrong. But right. I, I do the same thing. I still do it now. I, I talk to flag officers all the time as an 06. And I'm like, sir, bad idea. Don't like yeah. it. Hey, Mark, we're right. going ahead. Yeah. Got it, sir. You know, that's yeah. the amount of pushback I can give. Right. It's the amount of pushback we're all taught to give. And whether that's a flaw in our system or not, um, you know, we voice our disagreement. We voice our disagreement, our displeasure with something once. And then our superiors look us in the eye and say, Charlie, Mike, continue mission. Right. And we all nod north and south and go, yes, regardless of the pit in our stomach, regardless yeah. of what goes on. And those of us who push back more end up getting more flack and end up getting more ostracized. And I can speak right. to that personally in my career. 
um, than anything else for having a voice and having the gumption to turn around and say, no, this is not right. We need to reevaluate this. Or Somebody needs to step in and say, look, let's look at this from a different angle here and have a deeper conversation. Right. But we all just have gotten to this, yes, sir. Uh, so, I mean, there's, I think there's value in, in that as well, right? I mean, because there are going to be times when you, when there is pushback against completely valid and well-planned out, well-thought-out operations. Um, and, and holy and, shit, and we, by the and, way, just because you're higher ranking doesn't mean you're always right. I mean, that, that, oh, like, uh, it's, uh, yeah, humans can be wrong. Like, it, it's okay. <laughs> it's sure. okay. Even if you have multiple stars on your chest, it's okay for you to say, hey, I screwed up. Right. And I've been on both sides of that. I've been, you know, the, the junior guy pushing back and I've been the senior guy getting pushed back against. Um, and I've been the junior guy who was right. And I've been the senior guy who was wrong. Um, but yeah, I, I, honestly, I think there's also value in the, the chain of command. Um, like, like there is, you're getting your mail, by the way, I see the mailman back there. <laughs> this, um, yeah. The curtains so. are completely pulled back here as the mail comes in, uh, to the Zeno household. Yeah. yeah. Listen, at least it showed up on time today. So there, yeah, there, there is, is that. There it is. Uh, anyway. Well, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know if I could have jumped up on the, the, the right desk at the time. I think the, the decisions had been made. Um, there, there may have been po- politics involved, um, but. Ultimately, I, I don't think I could have jumped on the, the right number of desks to turn that thing off. There was- no, and again, that's fair. I, I think yeah. I think you're okay for understanding that. And and you know, um, look, as as a peer, I can tell you, you know, um, you got to put your head on the pillow at night, knowing that your voice, your displeasure, you, you did or your disagreement with the decision. That's a, a, as much as you can you can do. You, you don't need to bear any more of the blame for everything that went wrong. Because in reality, again, it, it, there was no way to know they were going to run with goat herders. If they go 100 yards to the yeah. right, they might not ever see those guys. If they go 100 yards to the left, they might not ever see those guys. Whatever. Right. You know, if, if they don't cut the ropes, I mean, there's a, there's a hundred other things that happened after you voiced your disagreement with it that all had to happen sequentially for this to go down the way it did. And that's the randomness of combat that we always talk about and, and the ways to, you could do everything right and it still can go bad. You could do everything wrong and it, you could still end up without a scratch on you. There's, there's no right. rhyme or reason to any of this. And I just hope that you, you know, among other things that, that you're dealing with, I, I hope that that isn't something that still is weighing you down. Like you could have or should have, or would have done more to prevent this from happening. Oh, no, it, um, I thank you. I do appreciate those comments first off, but, but at, the the reality the humanity yes. is that there's there's, there's still, still people re- lost still still right. people lost and there's still regret um still regret still guilt um but that comes back to you know how how i've managed to deal with it and that's through through my own mental health journey um which again i think uh people seeking out mental health support is becoming more and more um accepted um, which is, uh, you know, coming back to leadership, one of the things that as I started to go through my own mental health journey, mental health support journey, I had this big calendar behind me as as a, you know, 05. And I, I would circle psych, you know, psych uh, visit, or or rather, I'd write it in big, and I'd circle it in red. And uh, I would have guys coming up to me like, hey, hey, sirs, is everything all right? I'm like, yeah, why? And they're like, well, I see, you know, a psych visit up on your calendar behind you. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's, that's so that I can maintain being all right. You know, that's, it's not, it's not necessarily that I had something wrong, though there were definitely times I I felt that I needed, I needed help because something was wrong. Um, but there was also times that I was just going to maintain my own mental health. Um, 
And I think as a leader, we need to make that more um, acceptable. And we are. I think that the the military writ large is doing that uh, better than we have in the past. Yeah. And ultimately, it's for the betterment of of our soldiers, our sailors, our Marines, our airmen, our our you know, our, our Coast Guardsmen, uh, and, and everyone else. We're 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 better for it. We're a better force for it, yes. and we're better individuals. We're for a healthier it. force for it. Uh, um, absolutely. One more on Red Wings, just because I, I had a sheer morbid curiosity. Uh, the movie, Hollywood bullshit or somewhat factual? It's okay to say it's Hollywood bullshit because I thought it was Hollywood bullshit. Uh, I mean, look, yeah. I, I've read the books. I've read plenty yeah. of books on it, and, and yeah. the people who are there, people like yourself who gave different accounts. I get you have to bastardize some things, but you know, yeah. they took a little bit too many liberties, if you ask me. Uh, I agree. No, there okay. was there was some Hollywood to it. Uh, you know, the, the there was no massive shootout when we went to recover Marcus. I know, uh, yeah, like that, that it, part it, it I knew. Was, I'm like, what? What was yeah. this? Yeah, um, <laughs> you so completely they, made this fake. Totally made stuff up. Um, but you know, ultimately they they told a story that needed to be told. Whether sure, you know, aspects of it, uh, aspects of it were made up. Did did yeah. the vote thing bother you? Um, it did. Uh, I, there's been me. a lot of consternation yeah. and for those that don't know what I'm talking about the scene in the movie when they ex- get exposed by the goat herders there's a debate between you know uh, Mark Wahlberg's character and Taylor Kitsch who played Michael Murphy uh, and Mark Wahlberg obviously was Marcus Luttrell but you know all four of them on the mountaintop debating about what to do with these goat herders and allegedly it was put to a vote that Mike Murphy put it to a vote from everybody but actually the scene ends with Murphy saying hey there is no vote this is my call and I'm making the call kind of deal but at least right. the idea that they even put that out there uh, was to me a little bit, um, yeah, this isn't kind of how we do business. Yeah. I, I don't think that there was ever a vote. There was definitely discussion. You know, that's a, a good leader is going to listen to his, yes. his uh, subordinates and find out what their thoughts are on it. But ultimately, like you said, and, and that's, I'm glad the scene ended the way it did. Sure. Uh, at least as far as him saying, Hey, it's, it's my decision. Um but yeah, you don't put things to a vote, especially not that that type of critical thing to a vote uh, on the side of a mountain. So. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> you just got to chuckle. Hey, sh- hey, who should we fire back? Raise a hand. Say yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks. I'm glad we have that sort of time in combat to figure these things out. Anyway, all right. right. Um, you know, again, it's one of the more notable battles throughout uh, the entire war in Afghanistan, mostly because of the ending of it and what had happened and and the heroism of Mike Murphy and. And, and Matthew Axelson and Danny Dietz and obviously Marcus Luttrell surviving and all that. Um, and and the, the, the players on the periphery, the guys like you and everybody else who was involved in that thing in some size, way, shape, or form, all still feel the weight of it. Uh, and, and you should. They're, they're, it's never going to go away. There aren't words I'm going to say that all of a sudden you're going to wake up and go, oh, now I feel better. No, that, that's, that's not realistic and that's not what's going to happen. But, you know, again, um, I, I think it's important that you still have a voice on this. I think it's important that you still share the story. And Look, uh, for, for what it's worth, if it's worth it to, to you or anybody else, I mean, every uh, June 27th uh, and June 28th, I tweet out and remind everybody about Operation Red Wings and what went on and, uh, yep. and, and the, the idea to remember these warriors and, and what they did and, and, you know, how much they sacrificed. And really the idea that, look, you know, you'll do anything to save the life of the man next to you. And that's exactly what really encapsulates uh, the four men on that mountainside uh, and, and ultimately what had happened and, and how three of them ended up, uh, uh, you know, giving their lives uh, in that whole thing. So it's, it's worthwhile to do so. Now, you talked about how you were dealing with it, you self-medicated and everything else. This is your first deployment before yeah. you have six more, and yet this stuff is weighing on you going forward. I mean, is there a point where 
you're just barely functioning through the next phase of your career? Um, I, I think professionally, the face that I wore, the mask that I wore, I was still ha- highly functioning. Uh, mm-hmm. I was still doing what I needed to. But as soon as I was done with work, um, I, that's where I struggled. So you could uh, lock in on a deployment, but when you got yeah. home, it was yeah destruction. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it affected me personally. Um, as an individual, it, it affected my marriage. Um, I, I was not the husband that I should have been to my, my first wife. Did you ever share um, anything with your first wife? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, you, you know, but it's hard. It's hard to share with someone yeah. who isn't um, a team guy or who wasn't there involved in the operation. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to, and I think it's even more difficult to share with a spouse. Um because uh, you almost don't want them to know all the details um, because then they kind of look at you different or they, they change the relationship, but in not sharing it, it also changes the relationship. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely uh, struggled with, uh, with that in, in our relationship. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and here's the thing uh, and whether it's months after weeks, after years after, and I hope people listening understand this. Look, when, when you take that leap to open up to somebody, anybody, whether it's a loved one, a spouse, a doctor, a friend, a teammate, whatever it may be, unfortunately, their reaction to your vulnerability sometimes will determine your next steps mm-hmm. in what you do and how you choose to do it. I would implore everybody listening that if you're at that point where you want to open up and you don't get the reaction you want, remember, that's not a reflection of you. It's not a reflection of your experience. It is a reflection of them not being able to understand or comprehend what you're telling them. So don't give up. Don't stop being vulnerable to the things that are bothering you because those around you don't have the depth to comprehend it. That doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them mean. It, doesn't, it just means that they can't understand it and they don't know how to react to it. Uh, or they're just not aware enough in the moment to just listen and right. ask for, tell me more. Share more with me. Right, you know, because sometimes that's all you, that's all they have to say for you to keep talking, uh, right. as opposed to going, what? Like, you know, yeah. giving you a weird face. I just don't want people to be put off by the fact that if you don't get the reaction that you you are expecting, remember that's not the reason to stop being vulnerable and stop sharing. Oh man, yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. One hundred percent, love that message. I mean, look, I, I dealt with it personally. You know, with my yeah. ex, um, it was not the reaction I was hoping for, at all, to say the least. And and I could characterize it as downright mean. Um, I don't necessarily think that was the intent, Yeah, but I don't, you know, um, it's just, uh, you know, when, when, when you don't get what you're looking for, uh, the, there, there's an understandable reaction to shut back down and that's not what you want to do because sometimes that you fall even deeper than where you were. It's like you climbed out of the hole to be vulnerable, but then when you fall back down, the landing hurts even more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that's what I don't want people to get into. So you know, when, when you start sharing these things, are you starting to feel more of that? Do you feel like people aren't understanding me? So, uh, heck, I just, I'm not going to start talking about it. Did, did you go through that phase? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, whether it was from uh, my ex or whether it was from, uh, you know, even fellow team guys who hadn't gone through something like that in the past. Um, but but I found as I matured and I I think it's, I think it's actually on both sides. Like, how do you share your story? Like understanding the person that you're sharing it with wasn't there. 
they're not equipped like you talked about. They're, they're not equipped. Maybe they're not mature enough in that moment. How you share your story is also on you. Um, you can't just dump it on them necessarily. And no, that's a great that, point. Yeah. Expect them to lift you up. Um, you have to, you have to understand their perspective as well. And I think as I got older, more mature, when I sh- shared it with people, I shared it in a different way. And because I shared it in a different way, it was received differently. And then the support that I received was different. The response that I received was different. Um, so I think over time, uh, I, I've gotten better with uh, looking for support and, and then also sharing the story with uh, with those and how it affected me. But yet you're still continuing um, to go on deployments around the world. I mean, what's it like to flip that switch on? Because, I mean, you're going back into combat. I mean, I, you said none of your other deployments were, were of note. That doesn't mean that there wasn't a, a door kicked down, there wasn't an explosion, there wasn't a bullet fired or anything else. I mean, you're look, you're a SEAL for crying out loud. This is kind of yeah. what you guys do. It's kind of the nature of the of the, of the job that you have right. is to bring bad guys to justice. So, you know, uh, is there a sense that anything happened that happens on further deployments is compounding and putting more weight on what you're already dealing with? Um. Or you're not aware of it at the time. Yeah. For me personally, I didn't feel that anything that I did after that put anything additionally. Okay. Um, I I think it may have been the same or, you know, something that, that um, was, was just, it was like a bucket, right? A bucket full of water and maybe adding a few drops of water. You don't really notice the difference. I didn't notice a difference. Um, uh, I, I knew that I was not right. Um, I knew that I needed to do some work on myself and and where I was. But yeah, I, I don't think uh, the deployments weighed on me any anymore. Now, I will say what weighed on me did affect my deployment. So the reverse was true. If, uh, I don't know if that makes sense. But so the, the, the past um, decisions that have been made, the past um, operations, it changed the way that I thought about future operations, future uh, missions. Um, but I don't think the reverse really weighed on me too, too much. You keep saying that you weren't right. You weren't right. At some point in time, there's a seminal moment that will happen. I assume there's a seminal moment that sort of is a point of critical mass where you have to get all this weight off of you. When does that happen? Yeah. So uh, I think a, a lot of it really came to a head when, uh, when I got a divorce, um, I, I started to see myself and who I had been in my first marriage and realized that, you know, it wasn't all on my wife, right? Uh, you know, a lot of the time in a, in a divorce, you want to blame the other person, but uh, it's not, it's rarely ever all on one. Um, and I was like, okay, well, let me take a look at myself in the mirror. What, what parts of this did I play a part in, right? What, what, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? I did the, the after action report, right? The after action report that we do in the military. I basically did that on my marriage and I saw that. How'd that go by the way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, for myself, I realized that I'd done a lot of things wrong and I could have done a lot of things better and, and how could I change things? And uh, I ended up coming back from a deployment in Afghanistan. And then six months later went on, uh, not a deployment, but I moved out to Bahrain to do, do some work out there in Bahrain. And while I was in Bahrain, I had a lot of time on my own, uh, and did a lot of reflecting. And that's when 
I think the path towards healing started, um, you know, in, in seeking out some counseling, uh, starting to meditate, um, and really starting to see changes in, in the positive side for me personally, and for those around me, how I was as a leader, uh, and then how I was as a friend, how I was as a, as, as a brother, as a, as, you know, just as a man in general. So I, I think a, a lot of things changed. Um, I think the catalyst for it was going through the divorce. Not that I recommend everyone going through a divorce, to, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, it was the catalyst. Um, so when you realize this is where you are, um, you know, you're still at the convergence of, of being a leader you know, a commander in the Navy and everything else and, and, and running a SEAL team. Uh, how are you keeping all this together at this point in time? Again, I think as, you know, as a military member, as a, as a leader, as a, I don't know, maybe as a special operator, you just put the mission first. You have your list of yeah. priorities and, and um, you keep your, you keep your shit together when, you're in front of the boys or when you're with the boys. And then uh, when you go home and at night and you're on your own, you, you uh, that's when the struggles, that's when the, the demons come out, the demons come out at work, but you kind of uh, wear that mask in all honesty. I think you wear a, a mask of, of uh, perfection or at least perceived perfection. And um, yeah, you just march on, you carry on smartly. Right. As the, as the, as we all say, and that's, I think that's what I had to do at, for myself and for, for my men. So, uh, at what point in time do you know that your, uh, your military career is coming to an end? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I, long story short, I ended up getting in a little bit of trouble in the military. Um, happens to the my, best of us. Yeah. So my uh, former brother-in-law, so my sister's husband, um, battered her and I found out about it. And um, I called and him on the what, phone. You did what you should do. I did what most brothers would do. And yes. I, I called him on the phone and he didn't answer. Um, and so I sent him a barrage of text messages, you know, probably not the smartest decision on my point. Because uh, it's a record. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so he it's took proof. those text messages and he sent those to the the local police, and then it, it made its way to NCIS. And uh, I was supposed to command an element, and I was uh, I lost my command qualification uh, because of that. NCIS said that hey, they wouldn't have been too concerned, but I was a trained killer. I'm like, okay, you guys watch too many movies, but anyhow. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so if got, you were just a regular Navy officer, you weren't a trained killer, but since you're a yeah, SEAL, yeah, yeah, SEAL. Well, yeah okay. so it's kind got of ridiculous, it. but I, I lost my command qualification and then I just got so jaded with the fact that the Navy sided on my, my brother-in-law's part, uh, for, uh, what, you know, he had done something egregious and I had sent us a couple of text messages. And oh, see, I, I assume when you started the story, you went and kicked the shit out of him. Oh man. Um, that, that's I, I where I thought that. it was going. So, so yeah. he, he lived you didn't even in, get the uh, chance, huh? I, I mean, he, he lived in Boise, Idaho, and I was uh, living in, in Virginia Beach. So at the time, I, I, I didn't live anywhere close. But I did yeah. threaten, hey, if you lay another hand on her, I, I will show up at your doorstep. And, and I said, you know, some other colorful things in those text messages. But uh, again, not my proudest moment. But uh, I, if, you, if you mess with my family, 
uh, you're going to hear from me. Um, So, so he heard from me and uh, then, then I ended up getting jaded with the military. And so uh, this, this was kind of the pinnacle of, okay, I'm, I'm going to get out. Um, and, and funny enough, my wife was in the Navy at the time. She and I had both met, uh, at SEAL Team 10 and, and she had deployed with me, uh, to Afghanistan. And, uh, she was not my wife at the time, uh, but she ended up becoming my wife. Um, but she and I were both so jaded with the way that the Navy handled that, that we both got out. Uh, so, wow. you know, uh, I love the Navy. Um, I won't speak ill about the Navy as a whole, but I think some leadership made some mistakes along the way in that decision. And uh, we ended up getting out, but it was for the best. Ultimately, I, I think I'm, I'm having more impact as a, as a leader outside of the Navy than I was inside. Uh, so now, uh, now I'm doing what Look, I do now. If you spent any considerable amount of time in the military, regardless of branch, and you don't echo the same sentiment that you just did, that we have some leadership problems and, you know, there are a certain amount of things that have gone on that make your eyes roll in the back of your head and you sort of look sideways at it, then you just haven't been paying attention. I mean, that's right. That's fair. It's also normal for any organization that you spend 20 years in, whether you're in the civilian world or whatever, you, you're going to look at some decisions that are made at the highest levels and go, what the hell are they thinking? Right. You know, I, I don't think that makes you a bad leader. It doesn't make you a bad officer. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you human. Right. You know, there is this notion that we all just lockstep follow orders, and we do to a certain extent, but that doesn't mean that we're not allowed to be individuals with free thought and, and disagree with what goes on. Is it? There's right. a big difference between disagreeing and disobeying. Yeah. Oh, right? Yeah, like that's point. ultimately the difference. You know, I disagree with a lot of decisions my superiors make. I don't necessarily disobey them, right? Right. Because at the end of the day, there's, there's, there's rules and there's, there's laws and everything else, and, you know, Disobeying an order is a direct violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Disagreeing right. with somebody is not a, a violation of anything. You're, you're right. allowed to disagree. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the sentiment that you just – And again, you spent 20 years anywhere. You're going to be jaded by something. Ask anybody who's been married for 20 years. You're jaded by marriage <laughs> after 20 years. So there is that, right? doesn't mean you're leaving, right. but you're just a little bit jaded by the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so – at what point in time do you um, really begin your healing process and your healing journey? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it started in in Bahrain um, when I had that time to reflect mm-hmm. um, and you know started doing marriage, some right? work on myself. Started allowing myself to work on myself, not just not just my physical self, right? Going to the gym, that's great, uh, and I, and I love my time in the gym, but I, I I took a step back and I was like, okay, what what's wrong? What is not quite right up here in my head and what needs to be fixed and, and who can help me with that? Uh, and it's not, it's not my spouse. It's not my teammates. Sure. Venting is one thing, but like truly talking with someone and then getting guidance on what I could do next and not guidance from, you know, uh, uh, someone who's not trained again, the spouse, a friend, they're going to be like, Oh, well, let's, let's go have a couple of beers and talk about it. No, that, that doesn't help. Um, so I talked to uh, a counselor, talked to multiple counselors, got various forms of treatment. And then ultimately the the meditation is what, again, I, I attribute to changing my life for the better. Um, and quite honestly, saving my life. So how did you come across meditation? Like what, what, who presented it to you yeah. all of a sudden they just, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to sit here for 10 minutes and breathe. And you know, that sounds like <laughs> a great idea. 
I do that yes. every morning when I take a dump. Like I sit there for 10 <laughs> minutes and breathe. Like whatever. What, what's yeah, the one appeal? of the counselors uh, recommended <laughs> it to me. And uh, in all honesty, I laughed at him at first because I, I kind of had the same feeling. I was like, meditation's for weirdos. Um, it's not going to do anything <laughs> for me. And then, and then he, yeah, exactly. And then he, uh, he sold it to me as a performance enhancing thing, something that would improve my, my performance personally and professionally and physically and mentally. And, uh, you know, as a special operator, we're always looking for an edge, some type sure. of performance enhancement. And that's, that's why I started it. And the side effects, quote unquote, if you will, was that it helped me to deal with the, that baggage that I was carrying around. And it kind of allowed me to dump those rucksacks or at least open up the rucksack, take some of the stuff out and dump it and then keep marching forward. So, yeah. As you've done the meditation thing, you know, what stands out to you as, you know, I, I know you talked about performance answer, but to kind of take me through what it does for you uh, or what it did for you, kind of what, you know, cause for people who may be trying to understand it or maybe go down that road, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. Take me so, through the meditation um, and what, what's your feeling, what's your thinking? Yeah. I mean, I started very simply just focusing on my breath just to bring me into the present moment, right. um, which is which is helpful because a lot of the time we're living in the past, kind of ruminating and having a lot of guilt over the past or we have a lot of anxiety about the, the future. Um, what the the initial meditation was is just brought me into the present moment, allowed me to be present in my skin with the people that I was with in that moment. Now, fast forward, what physiologically happens is you actually change the way that your brain is wired. Over time, you start to live in the present more often, and you start to see things different. You start to respond rather than react, and you start to live um, a happier, healthier, more fulfilling life. And that is what allowed me to, again, change my life for the better and save my life because I was constantly living in the past. And thinking about how that past, it was so screwed up. Now my future was going to be screwed up. It kind of, I had this play in my head. So I think that was the the big change. Um, I, I got, I do have to tell you, Mark, I do have to bounce here pretty, pretty quick, man. Okay. Uh, sorry, man. I, I, no, let's, uh, well, let's put a bow on this thing then. Yeah. Um, so let's, let, let's take a, a moment here to talk about uh, McCaskill Consulting and what you did with it and, you know, how it, uh, how it's, you know, helping you not only, you know, in your journey, but also helping other people. Yeah, brother. Uh, so McCaskill Consulting, uh, I use that term consulting very loosely. Um, consulting, I do do leadership and management and culture consulting, um, as most consulting organizations do. But I also come in and I talk to people about their mental health. And I talk to them about meditation and living mindfully. And then I have some courses that I run people through uh, either as myself or with some teammates that I, I've uh, collaborated with to help them change the way that they live their lives as individuals. And as they change as individuals, their organizations change for the better. So that's uh, a little bit about what McCaskill Consulting does. I, I do some keynote speaking on these same topics um, and how mindfulness and meditation can help you to be a better leader, a better uh, team, a better culture, a better organization. Um, so that's a little bit about what we do. And then in addition to McCaskill Consulting, I do, as you mentioned at the beginning, run my own podcast called Men Talking Mindfulness, which covers a lot of same or at least similar themes to what we've covered today in that you know leadership um, and vulnerability and strength and courage 
uh, and how they're all tied together and how if you are missing certain aspects of that, you're missing out on being the best leader that you can be. Well, that's incredible. Listen, uh, again, I want people to check out the podcast um, because it's uh, it's always good outside of this one. I have no problem promoting other people's work. I appreciate uh, it, brother. We, we certainly uh, uh, want to share all the wealth that's out there. Men Talking Mindfulness, great way to go. Again, McCaskill Consulting. Uh, can they find you on social media anywhere? Yeah, I'm primarily on LinkedIn, but I am on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. I, I just now started getting back into those. I deleted them a long time ago and now <laughs> getting back into them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to grow a business, so I've got to be on all the social medias. So uh, yes. uh, I am on uh, John McCaskill, J-O-N, and then last name is M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L. If you look me up, uh, I'm, I think I'm the only John McCaskill who is a Navy SEAL commander teaching mindfulness. So there <laughs> that's you go. It's probably, probably a <laughs> small number of people with the same name who do the same thing. Well, yeah. look, I, I mean, I, I loved hearing all of your thoughts and, and certainly sharing the story of one of the most uh, important battles uh of the entire war on terror in all, in all of Afghanistan. And, and look, like I said earlier, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of second guessing to be done, but I just hope that uh, for you personally, that, uh, you know, that whole thing is, is, well, it's never going to be free from you. It's, it's a place where you're comfortable with it and put your head on the pillow at night, knowing that Thanks, you did brother. your job and did everything you needed to do uh, in your role uh, to be able to affect things as positive as possible. But it's incredible to hear your story. Thank you so much for your time. I certainly appreciate My it. My pleasure, brother. brother. Thanks for having me. I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right. Take care, brother. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.